Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. He dwells among us. I was thinking about different passages of Scripture when we were singing that song in the book of Revelation that he walks around the churches and then the Great Commission, obviously, that he will be with us always as we try to fulfill his mission. It's pretty amazing that God is with us and that we celebrate that this Christmas. And we're going to continue today in our Christmas series we've been doing called Dangerous Decisions. We've been jumping off of an oftentimes overlooked passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament. And the very first verse says it's a genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, like we just sang in that song. The son of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of Isaac, and then it goes 16 verses just listing names, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Ruth, Rahab, all these different people. And behind each one of those people was a story. And when you look at their stories, what you see is that God used what were dangerous decisions to them because they didn't know what the outcomes were going to be. Dangerous decisions that they made, God used to then usher in the delivery of the Savior of the world, that he would be Emmanuel, that he would be God with us. And those dangerous decisions, when you start to dig into their stories, you see were actually faith decisions. And so in their little story of whatever was happening in their life at that moment, whether it was that a husband died, or whether it was that they were infertile, or whether it was a situation where there was a a difficulty in front of them, that God called them to take a faith step. And in that faith step, God was ultimately using that from their little story to do something much bigger. And we've been asking each other and ourselves as we've been doing this series, what faith step does God want you to make this Christmas? And who knows how God's going to use that in in his bigger story of delivering a Savior to the world, of sharing Christ with this world, of fulfilling the mission that we have to tell people that God is with us. He is dwelling among us in the lives of every believer and sovereignly ruling over every circumstance in the life of the believer and the non-believer. And what faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? And you think about that, for some of you, it might be the biggest faith decision to trust Christ as your Savior. I know that every person I can say confidently from the Lord that I know that he wants you to make a faith decision, though. He says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please him. He tells in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that he begins a good work in us. At the point of salvation, he began a good work in you, and he'll be faithful to complete it until Christ comes back. So he's not done with you when you make that first faith decision. He wants you to continue to make faith decisions, take faith steps. And for some people, those are little steps, and for some people, those are, are, they seem like a leap into the dark. Because they're dangerous decisions. So what faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? Maybe it's trusting Christ. Maybe for some of you it's time to actually share Christ, to verbally share Jesus. We talk about having a one and praying for somebody and caring for somebody, but it's time for you to actually tell them the gospel. And for some people it might be following a guidance that God's been nudging you and guiding you and probing you. And for some of you it might be an issue of obedience. What faith decision does God want you to make? We'll ask that question today as we continue in this series. So far, we've looked at Abraham from this genealogy, and we talked about how his faith was tested. We looked at Ruth last week and how her faith was committed. This week, we're going to look at David, the first name that's mentioned, and how he has a courageous faith. And we're going to see three different characteristics of courageous faith in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So we jump off from Matthew chapter 1, but we go backwards into the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. There's 51 verses you'll see in your worship program. We're not going to read all of those today. But they're all good. So you can read those on your own. But we're going to jump in around verse 20, verse 22, somewhere in that range. And what's happening in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 is probably one of the most famous Bible stories that's ever been told. In fact, if you're here today and you've never been to church, maybe you came, it's Christmas time and you're hanging out with some family, or you've never read your Bible, you probably know of this story. It's David and Goliath. Now, if you don't know that story, there's, it's just part of American culture. It's the classic underdog story, typically, the way that it's told. The little guy fights a big guy, and the little guy wins. Spoiler alert, sorry about that. The end of the message, the little guy wins this story, this deal. But um, that's not the right way to tell this story. 
It's oftentimes how it's portrayed in children's Bibles. And if you're watching a football game uh, this Christmas and they'll talk about some team that, you know, bowl games got mismatched and number five's playing number 16 and they'll say the underdog has no chance. It's a David and Goliath story. And you automatically think that the underdog is the team that's rated lower. And we always love the underdog, right? Like you're watching a boxing movie. Why are the boxing movies never about the super big, tall, strong guy that has all the best nutrition and the best coaches and the best training facilities? It's always some dude that's in like a ragtag gym and he's trying to make a comeback because he you know, started drinking too much or his wife died or something happened and he's a down and out and you just hope he can land a haymaker in that fight. You always cheer for the underdog. And we read this story, we oftentimes think David is the underdog. David's not the underdog. Goliath is the underdog in this story. When you start to look at the context of what's been happening in the Old Testament, you don't just jump right into 1 Samuel 17. What you end up seeing is that Goliath has no shot if just one person, if one person in Israel will make a dangerous decision, if one person in Israel will step out by faith. It happens to end up being David. He was not the ideal candidate. And it's actually because someone else missed their opportunity to step out by faith. His name was Saul. The underdog is Goliath because what's been happening in the Old Testament, the Philistines and the Israelites have continually had these battles, but they've been not just physical battles. You see that the underlying results of what happens is always a spiritual issue. It goes all the way back to the book of Judges, the first time that you see Dagon, which is the God of the Philistines, versus Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, the God that we worship. And what ends up happening is that Samson ends up in this temple. It's the temple of Dagon. And one last feat of strength, he tears the temple down and kills all these Philistines and shows that the God of Dagon does not have power over Yahweh. Then you go to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is the Ark of God is stolen from the Israelites. They lose in battle to the Philistines. But then the Ark of the Covenant is taken into the temple of Dagon, and it's a pretty humorous story if you read it and you try to actually picture what happens is that Yahweh starts to humiliate Dagon in his temple. Every morning, people wake up, and then basically Yahweh has taken the statues that they've made of Dagon and made them bow down and worship him. No, no, we've got to fix him, can't be like that. And he chops off his head, chops off his hands, does all this stuff. Do you read 1 Samuel chapter 5? It's a battle of Yahweh and Dagon. That's what's happening here in this passage too. And we'll see it when we read the details that are oftentimes left out of the children's story. It's actually a spiritual battle that's taking place here between a false god and a real god. And the real question is, which one will you trust? And that's oftentimes the question for us. And will we step out? Will we take that? Because that's ultimately what a dangerous decision is. is are we going to trust in the one true living God are we going to trust in something else? Our circumstances, ourselves, it's a faith battle. The scene, since I won't read the first 20 verses to you, are basically there's this battle that's taking place, and some people believe that the Philistines thought that Yahweh was only a god of the mountains, and so if they could fight them in the valley, then they could win, because Yahweh doesn't show up in the valley is what they thought. And so there's these two mountains, and on one side are the Philistines, on the other side are the Israelites, and there's this valley in the middle. And the Philistines have this guy, he's this huge guy named Goliath, and he's coming out, and what's bigger than his body is his mouth, and he's talking trash to the Israelites. And if you read through it, he says some semi-humorous things, but he's talking a bunch of junk. And everybody's scared. And on the other side of the Israelites was this shepherd boy who was back several miles away from where the battle was actually happening, and his dad sends him, he's not even old enough to fight in the army, his dad sends him to take lunch to his three oldest brothers who were in Saul's army. And then take some cheeses, which I think is interesting because I love cheese. Take some cheeses to their boss, who he might not even know. And so that's his task. And he shows up. Everybody else is in military gear. Everybody else is there on the front lines, ready to battle. He's a shepherd. He's wearing a fanny pack. We'll see later. He's got some cheeses. And he can't understand why they're allowing this giant to hurl insults at his God. 
Look at it with me. We'll join in uh, verse, let's say, 22. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 22. David left his things, and so he's brought the cheeses, he's brought the lunch. He left his things with the keeper of supplies, and he ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. Hey, guys, what's up? Verse 23, as he's talking with them, Goliath, so David's never heard this before. It's been happening for 40 days, every morning and every night. So they're used to it. David hasn't heard it. Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man... They all ran from him in great fear. Next verse. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. We also give him his daughter in marriage. And he will exempt him from his father's family and his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man? In other words, why hasn't anyone taken this offer? Who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, that's David's oldest brother, he's fighting in the battle. We found out in chapter 16, he's tall, he's handsome. He's got everything going for him. He burned with anger when he heard David asking these questions. He says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? In other words, that's all you're responsible for, condescending language to David. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You want to see some carnage. Verse 29. What have I done? He doesn't get distracted by his brother. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else. That is a good thing to do when someone tries to discourage you from taking a step of faith. And he brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. They told him again what the rewards were. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Saul's looking for anybody except for himself. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. All these other guys in armor, right? They're all out there with their spears and their swords, and they're ready for battle. And here comes this dude. He's wearing a fanny pack. He's got his sandals on. He says, I got this. He's not even old enough to fight in the battle. Saul says, verse 33, you're not going to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been fighting. He's been a fighting man since he was your age, since he was a youth. What we see here is a study in contrast. David and all the other men in Israel, including Saul, and highlight and focused in on Saul. And the other guy, Eliab, who's also tall, who's also handsome, and should be able to fight Goliath from a physical standpoint. But all of them are scared. In fact, if you jump back and you start tracing it through the passage in verse 11, it says they were dismayed and terrified. That's before David showed up. Then in verse 24, David and the Israelites have heard the exact same thing, and everybody else runs in great fear. The way I picture it is that David was standing there talking to his brothers. Goliath comes out, everybody takes off, and then David's standing there like, where'd everybody go? And they're all afraid. And he comes back and he says to them, you're scared of this uncircumcised moron? Really? The guy who's defying the armies of the living, he's talking trash about God. You're worried about him? And it was like David saw things differently than everyone else, and he did. And he had courage. I think we're talking about a courageous faith. But courage is not just bravado. It's not just he's more bold. He's got more confidence. He doesn't have any more confidence than Goliath. Goliath is incredibly confident in this passage of Scripture. That's what his confidence is in. And where that comes from is ultimately the heart. So if you're going to understand 1 Samuel chapter 17, you at least have to know one verse from 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, what's happening 
is that Saul's no longer going to be the anointed king. He's still going to have the office of king. But God's going to take away his power, his enablement to be able to fulfill this office. And he's looking for somebody else. And Samuel, who the book's about, who's the, written, his name is named after, is God's man. And he's going to go and anoint the next king of Israel. And he shows up at David's dad's house. His name is Jesse. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1, 2. And, and the first guy he sees is Eliab, this brother here. And he's handsome and he's really tall. And God tells him what he's looking for in a king. And it has to do with his heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, God's speaking to Samuel and he says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Why? We saw what he's like when he was talking trash and he was burning with anger and really jealousy towards David. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, like how tall somebody is, how strong somebody might be, how intelligent they may be. But the Lord looks at the heart. So what's the Lord looking at in the heart? Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is when Saul blew it. God was willing to let Saul's kingdom be the one that endured forever. But Saul took things into his own hands and he didn't obey God. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Samuel tells him what the problem is. And the problem is that he disobeyed, which shows that he's not fully devoted. And because you have not kept the Lord's command, God's already appointed somebody else. And it's what David's oftentimes talked about as, even though David has a huge failure later in his life. He's called a man after God's own heart. Because that's where courage comes from, it's from the heart. See, a courageous faith is created in the heart. And so David's called a man after God's own heart. What is a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart? Is a person after God's own heart. It's somebody who walks in his ways. It's somebody who wants to do God's will. And so some of you ask yourself the question, what faith decision does God want me to do? I want to do the faith decision that God wants, not just whatever I come up with. I want to do what you want me to do. That's somebody who's showing they've got a heart that's devoted to him. That's somebody who's showing they're surrendered to him. It's somebody who wants to be in his word. It's somebody who loves his presence, the fact that he's Emmanuel, God with us. It's somebody who longs for purity. It's somebody who wants to walk in his ways. That's a person after God's own heart. And that's where courageous faith is born. See, oftentimes we get this idea that courage is just like bravado. And you think about the decisions that God may call you to make. And some of the decisions that God will call some of you to make this Christmas, they require courage. What if, it, what if you're married and God's calling you to take a step of generosity and you don't know how your spouse is going to respond? You want to give away some money that maybe they were planning for something else? Take some courage. Some of you, I shared with you last week, a gentleman that I was sharing the gospel with. He talked to me after the service. He was here and uh, talked about his background, his Muslim background. He's got to count the cost, because what's it going to mean to his family when he trusts Christ? That's scary. That requires some courage. Some of you can step out and share the gospel with somebody, and you hear me share stories periodically about people telling somebody about their one, and then they trust Christ, and what if it doesn't go that way? What if they reject you, and they don't want to be your friend anymore? What if it costs you a situation at work? It requires courage. So you can't have this false idea of what courage is, like it's just you just get a pep talk at church on Sunday or like a coach before a big game and you rah-rah and you go out and you do it and you quit your job and you give away all your money, which might be what God's calling you to do, but not because of some pep talk, because of the work of the heart. We oftentimes get this idea that courage is just like some heroic act that you do because you had some spur-of-the-moment idea. I had somebody share a story with me, uh, a guy named Trent Spencer. He's a social studies teacher in uh, Edmond, Oklahoma, and his, his marriage was falling apart. And so he decided he was going to win his wife back over by staging a crime in their home that he was going to be the hero for. And so what he did is he hired two of his students, paid them 100 bucks each, to, while he took his dog on a walk, that they would break into the house, they would tie his wife up, tape her hands up, <clears throat> then he would come back just in time 
And there was a, a choreographed fight. Like he cut a board so that when he hit one of the guys with the board, it would break in two. Like all this stuff would happen. And then he'd look like this hero. I think the guy read one too many Batman comic books. Well, he did the whole fight. Like the whole thing happened. What he didn't take into account is that maybe his wife had enough physical and mental fortitude to get herself out of being tied up and call the police while the fight was happening, which is what she did. And then he ended up confessing to the police, our marriage is on the rocks, I was trying to win her back, and, which I read it and I thought, it's sweet, but you're an idiot. <laughs> but it comes out of this idea of this false view of courage. The courage is just a heroic, what, the, what you see, the reason why this passage takes 50, it only takes a couple verses for him to throw a rock and hit Goliath in the head. It's at the very end. But the reason why God takes 58 verses, if you're going to do the whole chapter, to tell this story is because it's not really about just the rock and the guy in the head and one guy taking a bold step. It's all the stuff that happens in between. And the key is what's going on in David's heart. And what does David say to Saul? He says, don't let anyone lose heart. What's interesting is when you read the Old Testament, there's a, it's a Hebrew idiom, a, way, a, a phrase, a way of saying stuff. That lose heart means a loss of courage. The Israelite soldiers, when they're brave, are called strong of heart. And what you see all throughout the Old Testament, someone loses heart, their heart fails, their heart melts, their heart, their heart falters. It always means they lost courage. Here he says, don't let anyone lose courage, lose heart, because courage is a work of the heart when it's God's courage, when it's going to be a step of faith kind of courage. And we see people take them all through this series. Abraham was a courageous faith. Ruth, where you die, I will die. That's courageous faith. We talked about last week, the Hebrew guys and the fiery furnace. God will save us, but even if he doesn't, that's courageous faith. That's a heart that's fully devoted to him. Because God is very concerned about our hearts. And it starts there. Now with some bravado. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, guard your hearts. They're the wellspring of life. Everything in your life flows out of your heart. Love God with all of your heart. Second Chronicles, I love this verse. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are, who's a man or a woman after him is what it's saying, who are fully committed to him. He's looking for people like that. And it's like in this passage of Scripture, he sends this test to Israel, and it's really a spiritual battle that's taking place. And he's looking all throughout Israel. Is it going to be Eliab? Is it going to be Saul? Is it going to be one of these other soldiers? And they're all missing the opportunity. To David, when David shows up here, it's like David sees something totally different than everyone else does, and it's true because a courageous faith casts out fear. You have nothing to fear on this earth when you have a courageous faith, when your heart is fully devoted to God. Because you trust in his sovereignty. You know he's in control. And the, wor- the worst thing that can happen here is not that David steps out and fights Goliath and gets slaughtered. The worst thing that can happen in David's mind is that Goliath continues to be allowed to defy the army of the living God and to say trash talk against God. Because, and I'm just going to jump to it right now and cheat, another spoiler part. The, recent, the whole point of David's life, verse 46, this day the Lord will hand you over to me. I'll strike you down, and I'll give your carcass to the Philistine. He talks a bunch of trash, and do you know why? The whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. Because David's life is all about that mission. That's someone whose heart is fully devoted to God. It's all about the mission. I want, I want everybody to know God. I want them to know him. It's not about David. It's not about his circumstances. I'd like a promotion from shepherding. It's not that he wants to be known. It's not that. I want everybody to know God. 
And so he can't understand why everyone else, he starts asking this question. He's not trying to, hey, how much would I make and how much will we save in taxes? He's not calculating the reward here. It's like, what's, what's going to happen for this guy? And why haven't you done it? And why haven't you done it? I'm not even allowed to fight. I'm not 20 years old. I'm here to deliver cheese. <laughs> he says, don't let them lose heart. And we get all these details about Goliath. It's so that we can see what, what the rest of Israel sees. If you go back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 4 through 7, it's the longest description of any military gear in the Old Testament. And it, it describes the man who steps out, because this is what the rest of Israel sees, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Some people have a hard time believing this story because it says that. Nine feet tall. Who's nine feet tall? The tallest living guy in the world right now lives in Turkey. He's eight feet, three inches tall. The Guinness Book of World Records has a guy in there that's eight feet, 11 inches tall. The Guinness Book, I don't know if you knew this or not, a little history for you. They weren't taking records back then. Eight eleven's really close to nine feet, though. It is possible. The point is, he's huge. I don't think anyone took a tape measure and ran out there. And he gets his head cut off at the end, so it might be hard to measure him afterwards, too. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze graves, and a bronze javelin was slung over his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. The point of it weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. So just the spear head was 15 pounds. His shield bearer, oh, no, he's got another guy. This guy's got his back, right? He's carrying a shield that's the size of a normal human. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So anybody who steps out to fight this guy is fighting this nine-foot giant who's got these amazing weapons. He's obviously won before. What he's offering them to do is have a cage match. Two guys go in, one guy comes out. And the prices are high. Whoever wins, whatever nation that guy represents, that nation rules over the other one. And no one will step out. And then David's going, why won't someone step out? You're representing Yahweh. He wins every time. Have you read the Bible? He's one of as long as you'll trust him. You see, Israel loses when they start worshiping the false gods. Israel loses when they stop stepping out by faith. Israel loses when they stop making those dangerous decisions. David's saying, well, why don't you just do it? It's an issue of the heart. It's not get pumped up enough. You don't need a pep talk. And so God might want you to make a faith decision today. Maybe time to turn your back on some old ways and let new things come. For some of you, might be time to take a stand. For some of you, might be time to trust Christ. But you may be afraid. And there's good reason to be afraid when you look at things the way that this earth looks at things. But when you look at who you're trusting, there's no reason to be afraid. What's the worst thing that could happen if they take your life? But you get him. And you get to die representing him. Maybe you're not there yet. Good news. God does the work of the heart. When David blows it later in his life, what does he say? Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. He brings him back. He renews him back. So you've blown it before. He'll bring you back. Proverbs chapter 21, God can control. He can redirect the heart of a king, which means he can also do yours. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 says that you have a heart. Of, you have a heart that maybe is not sensitive to this. Maybe just come to the series, just going through the motions, and not even thought about what faith decision God wants you to make. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Another Chronicles verse. First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father, David, 
and serve him with wholehearted devotion. Be a man after his heart. And with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart, not just that of a king, every heart. He understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found. And if you don't, you will be rejected. But if you seek him, if you want him to do a work in your heart, he will do a work in your heart. How does he do that work? Well, that's our second characteristic. He oftentimes does it when you're in those solitary places, in the private places. A courageous faith is cultivated in the private places. It's created in the heart, but it's cultivated in privacy and sometimes obscurity, oftentimes in solemn pla- in places where no one else is at. And those, when you're doing the little things, Chuck Swindoll says it like this in his book on David. I recommended it in the small group study, which hopefully you get. If you don't, you can sign up for. It's in the little things and in the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable of the big things. He's talking about David and what David's doing. If you look at David and what he's doing in this passage of Scripture and just before this passage of Scripture, it's a bunch of little stuff. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Jesse is there and he's got all of his sons and Samuel comes to find out who's going to be the king and they see Eliab, David's not even there. And what ends up happening is you have this parade of all of David's brothers. There's seven of them. And God keeps telling Samuel, he's not the one. He's not the one. I've rejected him. Nope, he might look good. Not the guy. And they get done, and Samuel says, do you have anybody else? And he goes, well, David, but he's the youngest, and he's out with the sheep. We've got him taking care of the sheep. That's what the youngest did. Sometimes young girls, they would have go do this. Certainly, he's not the guy. Samuel says, bring him. He's being faithful, tending the sheep. And then what ends up happening in this passage, I told you about it. We didn't read the verses. Verses 17 through 20. You end up seeing what his dad tells him to do. He says, now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread to your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back an assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistine. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd. So he doesn't just leave them. He's faithful in this. He leaves them with a shepherd. He loaded up. He set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out in his battle position, shouting the war cry. He did what he was supposed to do. He was being faithful in the things that he was called to do. Caring for the sheep. What do you think it was like out there? In the dark. We see in the Christmas story some shepherds keeping watch of the flock. Angels don't show up every day. A lot of times... It's just you and your thoughts. Sheep are dumb, but they keep doing dumb stuff. Frustrating. You wonder if anyone cares. No one notices. And then his dad calls him, I've got a special assignment for you. Sweet, now I get to do something good. Take some cheeses to your boss's, your brother's boss. You don't even know who he is. I read that this week and I thought, that sounds like intern type stuff. Have you ever been an intern anywhere? Maybe some of you are interning right now and you're like, oh no, maybe he's going to ask me to do something right now. You know what you do when you're an intern? Whatever they tell you to do. That's what it's like to be an intern. I remember interning at a church I was thinking about this week. I was texting with one of my buddies. One time that buddy of mine actually got asked to be a human cone. (laughs) And what I mean by that, we were having a special event at the church, and there was a guy that was a special guest that was coming, and they asked him to go out and stand on a parking spot to save that parking spot for the guy. I said, you could have used a safety cone for that, but you were standing out there. Okay, human cone. I remember one time I had to go pick up the pastor from the airport. It was my first time picking the pastor up from the airport, and our dog ran away right as I was about to leave the house. My wife and I were going to go, you think God was teaching us any lessons in that? 
Think that's working at all when a guy's standing out there as a human cone in the parking lot? And some of you don't have the label intern, but some of you do some things. Don't you, don't you wonder, like, what is the point of this? Some of you just at home taking care of small children. You ever think to yourself, God, do you want more for me than to clean up peanut butter off the window five times a day? You, some of you are doing things at your office and you think, I'm overqualified for this. What's God doing? What's he teaching you? God gave me the vision for this church while I was interning at that church. Running errands and doing paperwork and all the stuff that interns are supposed to do. That's what David was doing. You know what God was teaching him in that? And we learn it later in the passage. After he tells Saul, don't lose heart. Then Saul says, you can't go fight. You've never been in the battle. You're too young for the battle. And David says, no, I've had battles that you don't know anything about. Go join me in verse 34, 35, 36. It says that David said to Saul, your servant's been keeping his father's sheep. Let me tell you what it's like out there. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I went Jason Bourne on it. Oh, that's my... He says, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. All right. For real? Like if I'm alive, I'm going, that didn't, you didn't fight a bear. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. So you're telling me, well, you were out there, David? No one writes about this in the Bible. No one else knows about this. Only David knows what it's like to fight the lion and the bear out there. Some of you have battles that you're fighting, and you're the only one that knows what it's like. And the question is, are you being faithful in those things? If you're not faithful in that small stuff, you will not be faithful when it's time to step out by faith. The Bible tells us that. I've had people, I remember riding in the car with a guy when we first were playing in the church. We were just talking about life, and he was new in his career, pretty awesome job. And he said, well, I mean, I don't really give right now, but when we get to this certain point, then we're going to give. The Bible says, no, you're not. You won't. You're not faithful of little. You will not be faithful as much. And so what about with our tasks? What about with our time? What about with the talent you have now that God's going to develop and shape and mold? Maybe in those times where you're interning it, He's shaping you. He's growing you because God does a work. He cultivates faith in those private, in those obscure moments. What was David doing? The lamb gets taken off. If I'm him, aren't you thinking to yourself, it's just a stupid lamb anyways. I'm not risking my life to go fight, get this lamb. Who's going to know? Just one. But he knows that God's entrusted him with that. And so he's going to be faithful with that, even if no one else knows it. And it doesn't matter if anyone else believes there was a lion and a bear. He knows. And what God did is he developed his trust in those moments. Because you look and see what he says next. It's not, I got pretty good with the slingshot while I was out there. Look what he says. He says, the Lord, verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What happened when he was out there tending sheep is he learned how to trust God. It wasn't just that he got a story of fighting a lion. He got a story of fighting a bear. I bet you it's an amazing story. But what happened was a work of the heart. This guy grew his faith. If I can trust you to deliver me in that, then I can trust you to deliver me in this. I've seen you work in the past. How have you seen God work in the past? Then I can trust you here, and I can trust you, and I see you do this work in the private places. Then when I step out in public, I'm going to trust you to come through there too. The question is, how does it go with you when you're in those small things? How does it go when you're, when you're fighting the lion and the bear? When you're interning it? Are you faithful with the small stuff? Because some people think to themselves, I'm just so awesome, people just haven't recognized it yet. That means you're not ready. Some people think, I could never be good enough. You're not ready either. 
Because you still, both of you, think it's all about you. You haven't learned to trust him. That he comes through. That if, who is Goliath defying? The living God. And he's alive. Dagon is not. That's the point. And Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't just come, the Christmas story. He came and then he died on the cross. You know he died? Because of our lack of faith. That's called sin. Because of when we've trusted in ourselves. And then he rises from the dead. And he offers life. He's the living God. Otherwise, all of this is in vain. We shouldn't even be gathered together. We're wasting time. We could be playing golf or hanging out, building snowmen with fake snow. But he's real, and he works. And do you trust him in the small stuff? You kill the lion, you kill the bear. One of the battle with sin that you have. When God calls you to share the gospel, somebody maybe no one will know. When you're being faithful to those kids at the house. I asked myself the question as I was reading the passage this week and think, well, people will see me stand up and preach about being courageous, but what about me? Am I, what do I do with private times? And I was thinking about uh, this past week when I was putting my four-year-old daughter to bed. We're laying in bed, we're talking about God, we're talking about sin, and I'm trying to talk to her about her sin because I want to modify the way that she acts. And we're talking through these things. And I said, well, do you ever sin? She says, yes. And we start talking about it. I said, do you know that mom and dad sin sometimes too? And she was like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was surprised by that. And so I said, really? What kind of sin do you think mom and dad do? She said, like yelling at kids. And I thought, you must be talking about your mom. <laughs> I thought, no, she sees it. You know why she sees it? Because she sees what many of you don't see. She sees me in the private moments. And they don't always go great. What about you? But what are you learning in those moments? Even in the failures. What are you learning in the victories? It's in those private moments that God cultivates a faith. See, we just want to jump to fighting the giant. But what ends up happening in at the time of fighting the giant. It's when you fight the giant, that's when you meet your champion. And that's what we see that happens next. In verses 38 through 39, uh, Saul tries to give David his armor. That doesn't go well. He says, I don't, this doesn't work for me. In verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones. I don't know why five. He only uses one, but he chooses five. He put them in his pouch, that's his fanny pack, in his shepherd's bag. And he's got this sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. I wonder if Goliath thought to himself, 40 days, you guys have been... What have they been saying to him for 40 days, by the way? He comes out and talks trash. I said, we'll get back to you. I'm like, what's been happening? 40 days, and this is what you come up with? This guy? No armor. He's got a stick in his hand and a sling. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Goliath knew this was a spiritual battle too. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, David's got some trash talk too. He was the youngest of eight. You come against me with sword and spear and spear and javelin. That's what you're trusting in, Goliath. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Which is interesting, considering he doesn't have a sword. Today, I will give the carcasses of this Philistine, of the Philistine army, 
to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Not the whole world will know that David's awesome. I bet you David would hate the way this story gets retold most of the time. All those who gather here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. That's what he learned when he was in private. And he will give all of you into our hands. And the Philistine came a little closer, verse 48. David takes out slingshot, throws the stone. The stones would be about the size of a baseball. And if you were good at using your slingshot, it could travel at about 100 miles an hour. Throws the stone, glass forehead, sinks into his head. He falls forward. He's not totally dead. David runs over to him, takes his sword. <laughs> Talking trash when he said, I'm going to cut your head off. Cuts his head off. Philistines run into the mountains. Israelites chase after them, and it gets messy. God wins. And when we tell this story, we oftentimes think, we need to be like David. Let me tell you who you are in the story. You're the Israelites. I'm the Israelites. We're looking at something that we can't defeat, because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul tells us about that in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For your battle is not against flesh and blood. There's not going to be some nine-foot guy standing out in the lobby going, all right, who's ready to walk by faith? Our battle is against sin, and our battle is against death, and we can't defeat them. And so we need a champion like David. David points us to the one who comes in the Christmas story, the son of David, Jesus. David's name means beloved of God. Who is Jesus? For God loved the world that he sent his son, his beloved son, What we see in this story is that David, he ends up going to the battlefield in humble circumstances, sent by his father. And what do we see? Jesus, born in humble circumstances, sent by his father to do battle against sin. And we battle against sin, but none of you have battled to the point of shedding blood yet. Jesus does. And he takes on sin, and he takes on death, and he defeats them at the cross. Colossians chapter 2 talks about this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It was victory at the cross. First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says, To everyone, for everyone, born of God, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It's by faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Not he who musters up enough courage. He who meets his champion in the battle. And your champion is Jesus Christ. He's the one who wins the battle for you that you can't possibly win. He's the one that is the reason why you can have courage because the work that he does in your heart is showing you to trust in him. Not how awesome you are, not to refine your slingshot skills, not so you can defeat the giants of your life. He wins the battle. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Not if you think positively enough, you will overcome the world. He has. So will you trust in him? What faith decision does he want you to make? Whatever it is, I promise you, has two elements. One, it's about his mission of making his name known, that the world will know that the God that you follow is the one true God, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except for through him. And two, it will cause you to trust him more. So what faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? Let's pray. Father, I pray as we read this story that can be such a familiar story that you would encourage our hearts, that you would put courage in our hearts. A courage to follow you, a courage to trust you. We know you are good and you only give good gifts. And sometimes they come in a form of things we would never ask for, loss of a loved one, 
difficulty in our lives, insurmountable circumstances, but we know that you're doing them for your good and for your glory to refine us, to shape us. And sometimes those private conversations we have with you, they can get ugly and they can get difficult, but you're doing a work, and I pray that you continue to teach us to trust you. I pray for those that are praying to you right now that they would continue to grow even in this moment in their trust of you. I pray for those who are doing the small stuff. You would encourage them that you're shaping them and that maybe their step of faith this Christmas is to continue to be faithful in those small things. I pray for those who need to trust your son, Jesus, as Savior, that you would give them the nudge that they need to take that big step. Work in our hearts right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.